Well, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 17. And I did wonder this week whether we should look at something different, whether we should take a break from our Genesis series in order to think of something that might help us with uh, how to respond to what's going on in Ukraine. But actually, as I studied Genesis 17, and this is going to sound weird when you read it, but actually I think this is exactly what God wants us to know this afternoon. There is something very precious that God wants us to see. But it is going to take us a little bit of work. Because at first sight, Genesis 17 seems very distant to us. Let me start with this. Let me see if um, I can get your interest at least um, engaged with this this afternoon. It may be that you're here and you're not a Christian and you're exploring things. It's terrific you're here. It may be you are a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, and it may be that you have favorite Bible verses. I don't think this is one of your favorite Bible verses. Listen to this. You'll probably have read this. If you've been in focus, our midweek groups, you'll definitely have read it because it's in the book of Philippians. But I think it's the sort of verse that we read and go, hmm, skip over. This is what Philippians 3, verse 3 says. It is we who are the circumcision. I don't think anyone's ever put that on a poster. Here is my favorite Bible verse. This is the motto for my life. It is we who are the circumcision. What the heck is that? Well, I want to try and show you this afternoon why that should be your favorite Bible verse, or at least up there. You see, we've got a bit of work to do <laughs> before we get there. So we're going to turn to Genesis 17, and we're going to read this chapter, and I promise by the end we'll get back to Philippians 3, and we'll see why that really is a stunning thing. So here we go, we're going to read Genesis 17, are you ready? Um, we're picking up the story of Abraham's life. Last week we saw this horrible chapter where Abraham and Sarah took things into their own hands. They abused their slave. She had a baby. It was, it was horrible last week. We'll contrast that now to the beauty of chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I'll make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. 
This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought with money from a foreigner, those who are not of your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. You'll call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he'd finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or brought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Now, let me just uh, give you a heads up right from the start. Uh, Spoiler alert. If this is very new to you, um, let me just make it very clear. The Bible says that we don't have to be circumcised anymore. So let me just get that out there right from the start, and we're going to explain why. And we're going to see how this works. And at the heart of what I want us to see this afternoon is what's really been running through all of these great I wills that we've been thinking about. It is the idea of a covenant. A covenant. Did you notice how often the word covenant came up. It is an agreement. A covenant is a, an arrangement, an agreement, more of a relationship between two parties. And it's that covenant. Here's the deal, right? It is possible to have a covenant, this sort of relationship between God, the creator of the universe, and us. How could a covenant work between God and us? How could a relationship work between God and us? Chapter 17 helps us to see how it works. So here's my question, another question to get you thinking. Is the covenant that God makes conditional or unconditional? Does God love you unconditionally? What do you reckon? 
you don't have to answer out loud, just have a little think in your head. Do we have to do anything for God to love us? I think that's quite an important question. Now, we like the idea of unconditional love, right? We like the idea of a love that placed no demands on us. God loves us no matter what we do. I'm not sure that's what you find in Genesis chapter 17. In fact, we're going to see in Genesis chapter 17 that there are conditions on both sides of this covenant. We have to work this through carefully. It's not like it's a seesaw. You remember the seesaw when you get on the seesaw? It's all evenly balanced. Nice, nice, nice. It's not like that at all. This covenant is massively weighted, we're going to see in a second, to God. But there is something that God calls on his people to do. I think that's pretty clear from the way that the chapter is structured. If you look at verse 4, look what God says in verse 4. God says, as for me, this is what I will do. And then in verse 9, he says, as for you. God says, this is my bit, as for me. Abraham, this is your bit, as for you. Can we all see that? So that's what we're going to try and work through. We're just going to see those two things. What is it that God does in this covenant? And what is it that we are to do in this covenant? Or Abraham, and therefore working that through to us. Let's start with God. What is it that God does? Well, we're going to think about the covenant that God establishes. God establishes this covenant. It all starts with him. It's why he talks over and over again about this is my covenant. So have a look at verse um, four, four with me again. This is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. God takes all the responsibility for this covenant. He starts it. It establishes it. He initiates it. Now, there is an interesting um, thing to notice here. How many years are there? This is the question for the mathematicians. How many years are there between chapter 16 and chapter 17? Because there don't seem to be many pages. You know, there's not many words. 13 years. Right, 13 years since what we saw last week when Abraham and Sarai couldn't have children, and so they, Abraham stepped with Hagar, the slave, and they got this son called Isaac. And then we saw this tragic thing where Hagar was driven away, but then they came back. And so now you've got this household of Abraham and Sarai and Ishmael and Hagar. But God hasn't said anything to Abraham. Which means I assume that for 13 years, Abraham thought, what a good job I did that. What a good job I rescued the covenant by having a child. What a good job we stepped in. That was a wise thing to do. But it must have been eating him up inside because there was so much strife. So there was this unsettled, and God is silent for 13 years. You know, sometimes you kind of imagine don't you, that God kind of speaking all the time to these guys. Yo, Abraham, how's it going? Let's have another talk. <laughs> But you imagine that God just keeps turning up and having a conversation every day. Abraham's quiet time is like a cup of coffee with God himself. But it's not. It's 13 years of 
right, what were you doing 13 years ago? Think about how long ago it was. 13 years ago. How many of you were still in school? Terrific. How many of you hadn't started school? Seriously, think where you were 13 years ago. Imagine if you had not heard anything from God for that length of time until now. You'd just be getting on with your life. You see, God, we're in a real rush, okay? We want to get things done. We want everything to happen now, 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 now. Get on with it, get on with it. But God, in his perfect timing, waits and waits. And after 13 years, he shows up again. And he says to Abraham, he introduces a new name. He says in verse 1, I am God Almighty. Abraham, you are not God Almighty. What you did all those 13 years ago was shameful. It was wrong. It was arrogant. And it was rebellious. I am God Almighty. The, the, the Hebrew of God Almighty is El Shaddai. Here is the God who is powerful. Here is the God who is mighty. Here is the God who is the creator of all things. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. You see, if you're going to enter into a relationship with God, you have to remember who he is and who you are. He is God Almighty. Glorious, majestic, holy, awesome, creator, high and lifted up. Not like us. That means the only chance there could ever be of a relationship between God and me is if God initiates it. And so God steps in. God starts this covenant. It is his covenant, my covenant. And all the way through this section, we get those beautiful words again. I will, I will, I will. It's like relentless. Abraham, I will do this. I will. Yeah, but God, it's been so many years. I will, Abraham. And God's promise is to initiate it and then to establish it and then to complete it. It is like God says, I will do the beginning, the middle and the end. No piece of it will be left to you. It is all on me. This is what we saw in chapter 15. It's God's covenant. And his promise is so extensive. You're going to be the father of many nations. In fact, Abraham, your name, let's change your name. Let's get your name a bit more appropriate. Abraham, father of many. Because I'm El Shaddai, and I'm not just going to make you the father of one. I'm going to make the father of, not even going to make the father of one nation. Many nations are going to come from you, Abraham. God's plan for them, I will make you very fruitful. He's 99 years old. He's like a withered old prune. He's not fruitful. Maybe unfair. But he's not. In no way is he fruitful, yet God, El Shaddai, comes and says, but I will do that. And God promises this covenant he says, I will establish, verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. God is so clear. This isn't just about Abraham. This is about all those who are going to come after him. 
God, El Shaddai, is making, establishing, initiating, establishing, and going to complete a covenant with all who will come after Abraham. This is massive in its scope. This is the greatness of God's plan. It's for all of the descendants who come after. And it's this promise of the land again that we've seen. The land where you are, I will give you as an everlasting possession, Abraham. It's for you. And God says, I will do that. And then you get really the very heart. It's like you drill deeper. God says, I'll give you nations. I'll give you a land. But fundamentally, did you notice this this verse at the end of verse 7? His promise is, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And then at the end of verse 8, and I will be their God. The covenant isn't so much about what God will do or what God will give, but about knowing, loving God. Being able to say, he is my God. He's ours. You want to sum up the covenant of the Old Testament? The covenant is, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. You'll be mine. That beautiful. God wants you to be his. God wants a people who will belong to him. God wants a people who are in relationship with him. This is no mere contract. You know, between me and Santander and my mortgage, we've got this contract going on. Yes, they might be my bank, but they're not my bank in any way that makes me feel happy. God is our God in a way that makes me say, he's my God, and therefore I I get to call on him, I get to love him, I get to know him. The heart of this is, I will be your God. Now, I, I I do just want to emphasize this now so that we really feel the weight of this. It is God who establishes it. That means there is nothing you can do to achieve a relationship with God. There's nothing you can do to achieve a relationship with God. You would have more hope of phoning up Boris Johnson and saying, Hey, Boris, I'd like to be your friend. Do you want to come around to my house for tea? You'd have more hope of establishing a relationship with God, with with Boris, than you would with God. There's no hope that me, a little creature, could ever dare to initiate or to reach out to or establish a relationship with God. No hope. It is only if God chooses to establish that covenant with me. It is that direction. It means there's nothing here that we can boast about. Nothing that we can claim. Nothing that we can say, look at me. Haven't I done well? This covenant leaves us saying, what a God that he would want to know us. And to be in relationship with us. And this covenant is the only firm foundation in a world of turmoil and peril. This covenant is the only thing that will help you to stand firm when everything about you is falling down. You know, sometimes the noise of this world fills our ears. Sometimes the noise of war fills our ears. And it seems so loud. And we need to let the We need to let the I will of God pierce the noise and speak to us. He says, I will. I will. 
See, human beings are constantly saying, this is what I will do. This is what I will do. Vladimir Putin has a plan. This is what I will do. I will do this and I will do this. But his plan won't work. His plan will fail. His plan will fail because one day he will die. And on the day that he dies, he will then meet Jesus as his judge. And Jesus will bring him to account. And all of his I wills will count for nothing before the God who is judge. Because there's only one I will that lasts. There's only one I will that stands over the everlasting years of history. The I will that God says. It's the I will of this covenant. This is the, this covenant, you've got to get this right. We're not dealing with a small thing. We're not sitting here in a room having a kind of, a, a sort of fringe meeting about some sideline issue. We're talking about the only thing that lasts. Nothing else lasts. This is the only thing that will stand the test. And so when a Ukrainian church meets in a basement in terror, as they can hear the bombs flying around them, what they need to know is that their God says, I will. I will keep you. I will protect you. I will establish you. And I will bring you home. That's the only I will that lasts. Did you see, I don't know if you saw this week, the footage of a Ukrainian, a group of Ukrainian Christians singing, he will hold me fast. I think of all the things I've seen this week, that really broke me. Because I know the words to that song. I know what they were singing. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the darkest valley he will lead me. When the night has been, oh, the night has been white. We will overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's not even he will hold me fast. It's me. I don't even know what song it is. But you get the point, right? He's the one. It's him. It's him. And as those Christians hide in their bunker, singing of their confidence in God, that's right. His, his will alone. That's how we hold our confidence when things around us seem to be going crazy. God says, I will. But I want us now to switch because we're going to see, we'll land this again in a minute. But I, I want us now to see, well, what's our part then? What is it that we are to do? God says, as for me, I will establish the covenant. Verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you. What's he got to do? What does it say? As for you, you must keep my covenant. Now, this isn't difficult. God establishes it, we must keep it. That's how it works. We don't establish it, initiate it, complete it, or anything. We keep it. What does it mean to keep something? Well, it has the idea of guarding something, to treasure something as precious. Not to chuck it away, but to keep it safe. I guess it's the difference between a suitcase, hand luggage, and a handbag, or a bum bag, which if you wear around your middle, looks a bit naff, but if you wear it like this, it's like a really cool, it's bizarre, it's cool. So uh, 
You see, what do you put in your suitcase that gets chucked on the thing and goes around the thing and gets thrown in the plane? What do you put in there? The stuff you don't really care about, right? You know, I, I care about it, but it's, you know, if it gets lost, well, I don't know. What do you put in your hand luggage? Oh, I don't want to put that in there because this, this matters. But what do you put in your hand luggage? What do you put in the small of that? That's where you put your passports, where you put your tickets. That's where you put the things that really most matter. And God says to Abraham, I want you to put this covenant not in your suitcase of life to be kind of swirling around over there. I don't even want it to be in your hand luggage of life that you sort of carry around and get out every now and again. I want it to be right over your heart. I want it to be in the closest place. I want this covenant to be the most precious thing. Abraham, as for you, you must keep the covenant. That's why God says to him in verse 1, I'm God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be Abraham, let this one reality, let this I will, let that shape everything about how you live your life. Walk before me and be blameless. Which if this is all we had, we'd be like, okay, great, that sounds really nice, that sounds fine. But then God says, rather bizarrely, this is my covenant, verse 10, with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep, Every male among you shall be circumcised. Is that just me? or That sounds random. Why? Why would God talk about, in this moment of great covenant renewal, why would he suddenly say, you must be circumcised? Well, that's the key question for us now just to work through. And I guess I've got to ask you, does Abraham have to be circumcised? Well, yeah, he does. Not to establish the covenant, not to enter the covenant. But God says, if anyone who is not being circumcised will be cut off from his people, he's broken my covenant. So this is a condition that really matters. So why circumcision and what does this mean? Well, let's think about the act of circumcision for a moment something you hear every day. What is, it, what is it with circumcision? Well, here's three things about circumcision that I think make it begin to help us to understand why God would ask Abraham to do this. Not just Abraham, but all of the males in his um, family. First thing, circumcision is costly. Right? It's painful. It's it's not God says, look, I've got a little ribbon that I'd like you to pin on your lapel. Could you wear a ribbon for me, Abraham? And that will mark you out as one of my people. And perhaps you could put a ribbon on everybody else's lapels as well. And then, you know, why couldn't we just have gone ribbons? Why so much blood? Why, why, why something so violent? I think that's the point. It is costly. In fact, God says it is a covenant in your flesh. The fleshliness of this act, the cutting off of the male foreskin, is in its costliness and painfulness and bloodiness is the point. 
God is asking his people for a costly act. It's costly. The second thing I think about um, circumcision, which makes it important for us just to think through, is that it's permanent. This is something you only do once. Good news. It's something that marks you out for, that's it, for the rest of your life. It's a one-off act. So it's costly, it's permanent, and thirdly, it is a sign. God says this will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It is signifying something. That is, it's not that the physical circumcision itself is the thing. It is the thing that the circumcision points to. I mean, the most obvious example of this is is my wedding ring, right? I wear a wedding ring because I'm married. The fact I wear a wedding ring doesn't make me married. The physical act of putting a ring on doesn't make me married, but it does signify the greater reality that I am married, right? So circumcision is supposed to signify something bigger, something deeper. As you read on through the Bible and you get to the book of Deuteronomy, you discover that circumcision was always supposed to be about circumcision of the heart. The cutting away of the foreskin was always supposed to point to a deeper cutting away of sin from within the heart. God says, circumcise your heart. Get rid of the sin that's inside you. So here is a costly, permanent, and inward pointing act. Haven't got that? At which point you might still say, what about us? Can someone just clarify this? Okay, in order to make this clear, I need to remind you of a connection that we made right back at the very start of our series. It's a connection that you discover between Abraham, this figure from history, and Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, it says that the covenant was made with Abraham and his seed. Not his seeds, but with his seed. It's very clear, with one person, with Abraham and with one other of his offspring. Who is the seed of Abraham? It's Jesus, Christ. So the question is, how does this covenant in Abraham's flesh point us forward to the covenant that God will make with Christ's flesh. This is why, and I didn't know this was the case, but it just shows you that sometimes things really do work out well. This is why what we learn in the creed today really matters. Because Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, had to become a man. He had to take on flesh. Some of you will have heard me say this before, but it's always worth saying again. This is the incarnation. Right? Incarnation, it's easy to remember, carne is meat. Right? Chili con carne is chili with meat. Yes? So incarnation, the carne bit means meat. So, so Jesus is God con carne. 
right? God with flesh. That's what the incarnation means. He's God con carne. He's God become man. Why did God have to take on flesh? Well, because the covenant that God made was a covenant in his flesh. This is a covenant, Abraham, I'm making with you and with your seed. That seed is Jesus. And so here's the big problem. This covenant of circumcision, Abraham couldn't keep it. And neither could the rest of his descendants. And so what happened was they, they broke the covenant. And so yes, they took the outward sign and they were circumcised outwardly, but there was no circumcision of the heart. Their hearts ran off after other gods. They loved other things. They broke the covenant again and again and again. God says, I established the covenant, but you've broken it again and again. And that is why God made the covenant with Abraham and his seed, Christ, because these guys in the middle couldn't keep it. It doesn't matter if you get a bit of your skin chopped off. If you don't love God, it means nothing. And so we're always waiting for the one to whom God would make a true covenant with his flesh. And so here comes Jesus fully in the flesh. And Jesus, when he was eight days old, was circumcised as a baby. But then even more profoundly, when Jesus was 33 years old, he was circumcised completely. When he was cut off completely. When he in his flesh was cut completely. Remember the three things about the sign? It was a costly sign. Can you think of anything more costly? And the blood that flowed when Jesus was cut down. Not just the blood that flowed from his circumcision, but the blood that flowed from his head and his hands. The blood that flowed from his back as he was held up on the cross to die in his flesh. His flesh was ripped apart. A costly, violent, sacrificial act. Perhaps that's why circumcision had to be so bloody. So that when Jesus died on the cross, you'd say, I get it. I get it. Get what it costs. This is a permanent sign. It's only done once. See, here's the beauty. You can't keep the covenant. That's why the covenant of circumcision was never with you. It was never a covenant in your flesh. It was always a covenant in Christ's flesh. And so Jesus, who is the true circumcision, was lifted up on the cross. He was cut off. His flesh was cut. He died once for all. You don't have to be circumcised because Jesus was. If that doesn't make you love him, I don't know what will. You don't have to be circumcised because Jesus fulfilled it completely. It was permanent. It was once for all. And it was inward. You see, what Jesus did when he died on the cross was he circumcised our hearts. He did what you can't do for yourself. You can't change your heart. Have you ever tried? You can't change your heart. You can't circumcise your heart. You can't love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. We desperately need Jesus because Jesus came to bring about the transformation that no knife can bring about. That's why when you get to um, Colossians chapter 2, just listen to this. 
in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised. You've been circumcised. So look, right, um, it isn't that circumcision doesn't matter anymore. It's not that we can just ignore it and go, oh, thank goodness that doesn't apply anymore. It's that it's been fulfilled. You have been circumcised. Really? Yes. Not performed by human hands. Ah. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the working of God. Over God who raises the dead. Do you see it? God, Christ, has done what no Old Testament ritual could do. He has circumcised your heart, given you a new heart. He was cut off because of your sin, and then he was raised so that he could give you new life. This is the new covenant. This is what we're talking about. So are there conditions of the new covenant? Yes. And Christ has fulfilled them all. He's done it all. Which means the only thing left, the only condition that you believe is that you trust him. Is that you say, Jesus, I want in on that covenant. See, the temptation is, we need to wrap this up, the temptation is that we we so quickly turn back to our own human effort and we go, no, I can sort this, I can sort this. Abraham, even as the story goes on, we haven't got time to deal with the last bit of the chapter, but Abraham basically says, well, why don't we use Ishmael, God? Let's use Ishmael. God says, Abraham, when will you learn? I'm not doing it your way. We're not going to do it your way. We're going to do it my way. We're not going to do it so that you can claim, look at me, I fixed this. No, God says, I will do this. I will do it completely and I'll do it fully. And so many people, they... They've turned religious performance into something that we do. So by the time you get to the New Testament, people are going, look at me, I've been circumcised, aren't I great? No. Stop boasting about outward stuff. Look at me, I go to church, look at all the things I do. The only thing that counts is that Christ has given you a new heart. And I know it's not the language that we would use, and it's not language that's particularly pleasant, and it's not language that we would put on our walls. But it is we who are the circumcision. It's we who belong to this covenant. It's we who else should die has made a covenant with. It's us who get to call God our God. He's done it all. And so chapter 17 of Genesis is... God has fulfilled his part as the great El Shaddai. He then sent Christ to fulfill our part (laughs) as the perfect man. And now he says, it's all been done for you. Here it is. And all we do is receive it by faith. We take hold of it. We say, Jesus, thank you. So I think this means that if you are someone who is tempted to feel guilty all the time and like God doesn't love you, you need to believe that Christ was circumcised. Christ has circumcised your heart, given you a new heart, made you new. You're someone who tends to take pride in what you can do and say, God, look at me, look at me. You need to humble yourself and say, God, it's all Christ. Everything is done by Christ. I just want to believe and receive it. So the only way that you can break the covenant now, the only way you can break the covenant now 
just turn your back on Jesus. That's it. That's the only way to break the covenant. Because he's done it all. But if you turn your back on Jesus, you are breaking the covenant. And you are turning your back on the covenant God who loved you and gave his son for you. So why don't we take a moment to just pray? And I think in days when everything feels very uncertain, here is a promise. Here is a reality that we can cling to. Let's pray together. Father, these things in many ways feel very distant to us, but Lord, thank you that you are the God who establishes this covenant. Thank you that because we couldn't do it, you then sent your son to fulfill this covenant. And we pray that now with changed hearts, with hearts that have been made new by Jesus, that we would keep this covenant treasure. Not chuck it in the suitcase, not just put it in the hand luggage, but keep it close to our hearts. That this would be our treasure possession. This would be what keeps us firm when the world around us terrifies us. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.